This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Wednesday Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering Bible questions and life questions and pretty much anything that's on your heart. I'll do the best that I can. All you have to do is call us, 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time for our phone number. Our main number is 340-9585. Hey, it's Wednesday. That means tomorrow Paula will be live in studio on the Date Day edition of the program with me. And Paula is getting ready to go on Friday to Galveston. She's actually doing a a women's retreat for uh, a Calvary Chapel in the Houston area. Uh, and they're going to do it in Galveston, so I'd appreciate everybody praying for her. And uh, Jocelyn is going to be going with her and doing the music, and um, they always have a blast when they do that. Uh, also, because it's Wednesday tonight, I'm going to be teaching in Isaiah, finishing Isaiah 28, and doing Isaiah chapter 29. I, I talked too much last week. I went too long, and I didn't get to finish, so it's kind of an awkward break. But uh, these chapters, chapters 27, 28, and 29 have been uh, enormously important in terms of of the practical value for New Testament Christians. And we're getting into that place in the book of Isaiah uh, where it's all going to be looking forward for t- t- toward our future, really. I, I, I'm really excited about finishing this book. Let me get to some questions that have been sent. Before I, I get to a new one, let me finish one that I started to answer at the very end of the program uh, yesterday and did, didn't have enough time. It was Andrew's question, and he said, what does it mean when a pastor asks the church for armor bearers? Um, very briefly, uh, I'll recap what I told you yesterday, Andrew. I said that armor bearers, just just people that would, would, would serve, people that would come alongside uh, the pastor or, or, or others in the church who are serving, and just sort of be there for them, to to be available, to pray for them, to serve beside them. Uh, of course, the imagery is is from Jonathan's armor bearer, one of the great unsung heroes of our Old Testament. Um, Jonathan, when his father Saul was just sort of sitting under a tree, 
not doing anything, looking like the king and trying to act like the king, but not doing king stuff, Jonathan kind of got frustrated. Let, let's go see. Who, who knows? Maybe God will give us a victory, whether it by many or by few. And um, uh, he ran it by his armor bearer, and his armor bearer said, I'm with you, heart and soul. So, Andrew, that's more of just a spiritual way of saying, look, we need people who are like-minded and like-hearted people that will serve. And every church, every pastor needs armor bearers. And it's just somebody who will protect us, somebody who will stand beside us, somebody that we can depend on. You know, one of the um, most important ministries uh, anybody can have. It's not a spiritual gift, but, but... it's just to be able to be counted upon is an amazing gift to the Church of Jesus Christ. To have men and women who aren't going to sort of fade away, men and women who aren't going to compromise, but people that you can count on, those are armor bearers. And Jonathan had a great win, and uh, I have been blessed, Andrew, with so many armor bearers here. Now, we don't call them that. That's kind of a spiritual-sounding way of saying, look, we need people that will serve. That's what the armor bearers are. Without regard for getting attention, the armor bearer in Jonathan's story knew that he wasn't going to get credit for the for any battle that was won. That would be given to Jonathan. That's the way it's supposed to be. And yet he served heart and soul, and he was with Jonathan. So, Andrew, I hope that uh, helps a little bit. Here is a question from our email inbox from Nacho. Uh, So, Pastor Ron, regarding your sermon on Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 25, why do you think the Jews did not understand or adhere to the spirit of the law, but strove to adhere only to the letter of the law? And then why did God wait so long um, before Jesus explained the spirit of the law. Well, not sure the answer there is really pretty straightforward. Um, the Jews couldn't understand the spirit behind the law because they didn't have the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, when he, on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, spoke about the, 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 um, the spirit behind the law. It's not just keeping the letter of the law, of course, which nobody could keep. That's very important. Nobody could keep the law. But it, it, Jesus is saying, if you want to go to heaven... And you don't want to believe in me, the one that God sent. This is how good you have to be. And I said yesterday uh, to another question, that be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Ends chapter 5, uh, the opening chapter in the Sermon on the Mount. And there's simply no way uh, that, that we can be perfect. And so the Jews would look at the list. And it's 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 same for us, Nacho. It's 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 our carnal tendency to be, to, to believe that uh, I can do good, or I can be good, or I'll do better. And Jesus is apart from me, you can do nothing. And the Jews were trying to keep the letter of the law in their own strength, and of course that was doomed to fail. That was doomed to fail. Anything that you think you can do to satisfy God in your own strength is always going to come up short. So the Jews would look at the letter of the law, and you know, Jews actually believed that if one Jewish male, one man, could keep the law perfectly for one day, then the Christ would come. And we know Saul of Tarsus thought he was that man, and he tried so often, but we all fall short of the glory of God, and we do so continually. Well, in this particular case, uh, because they had no capacity to understand the letter behind the law, 
um, the best they could do is strive. And when you strive to please God, you're always going to fail. Good question, Nacho. Thank you very, very much. Here is an anonymous question. Would you please talk about churches that make appeals for building funds? Uh, I'm laughing, Anonymous. I'm, I'm laughing with you. I'm not laughing at you or at your question. Um, you know, I, I just not long ago had a conversation about this kind of thing. I, I think it's a horrible, horrible, horrible thing when people who go to church to learn about Jesus are subjected to continual appeals for money. I think it's a terrible thing. Now, again, I understand that most churches ask for money. We don't. God's made it very clear that we're never to let our needs be known, nor are we ever to solicit gifts uh, from anybody. But the truth of the matter is that churches that continue to make appeals for money, whether it's a building fund or any other thing, um, are, are people who are demonstrating a lack of trust in God. Now, I, I understand fundraising. I really do. I was in business for a whole lot of years before I got saved. Um, but, but you see, if we're doing what God calls us to do, then God will provide the resources necessary. Now, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with letting people in the church know that you want a building. We, I've been crying and whining, not having a building for all of these years because we got such a small space, and yet um, the Lord made it really clear that we're never to mortgage a building. And if I'm not going to mortgage one, and we don't have the cash because everything that we do is free, um, it means we're not going to get a building unless God provides us a whole bucket full of money. But you see, I think when churches feel led to build a building or to build a new building or to add to a building. I think that's when they ought to stand firm in their faith and say, God, you want us to do it? We're going to take a step of faith and and and, and take that step and do it. But you've got to provide for it. And I think we've just come to rely on our ability to sell the people the vision that we think we have. And I, I, I'll never get over it. It's just something that I can't be convinced otherwise. But I think that when churches are constantly asking for money, whatever the, whatever the reason, I think when churches are constantly a- asking for money, I think that demonstrates a real weak faith in God's ability to provide. So again, it's not sin anonymous, um, um, but but it's it's just, I think, a little bit of unbelief and... Um, I don't know where you go to church, but I think these are the kind of things that maybe if people in the churches began talking to their pastors about, maybe some of those pastors would be moved to do something else. So I hope that helps a little bit. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions or toll free 877-630-KSLR. Here's a question from Samantha. She says, doesn't Galatians 3.28 make the biblical case for egalitarianism? Um, Samantha, the answer is no. Let me tell you why. Let me read Galatians 3.28, and then we'll move on. It says, 
uh, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, here is the, the thing. You can't divorce uh, uh, a verse from its context. And when we do that, then you come up with issues like this. Uh, egalitarianism, for those of you who who don't know, is uh, the uh, belief that women and men serve in the church with complete equality in terms of roles and position, uh, that there is no role in the church that's off limits for women. Now, we know that the Bible says, I do not permit a woman to teach her of authority over a man. And the context, that's in the pastoral epistles, that's that's the, the, the uh, um, pretty definitive statement uh, based on how church should function. Remember, the church belongs to Jesus, and he makes the rules. Well, Samantha, Galatians 3.28, the context there is justification by faith for everyone. And of course, that's what it says. It's a perfectly true statement. It means that everyone can be justified by faith, believing God, whether you're Jew or Greek or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. So you can't say, well, I'm going to take that passage of Scripture, and though it's in a completely different context, and we'll apply it to the roles in the church. You can't do that, especially, Samantha, when there are very specific passages in the Word that, that really deny the concept of egalitarianism. So I understand where you're coming from. In the eyes of God, in terms of justification, just as if I'd never sinned, everybody that's ever lived has complete, total access to that justification. All we have to do is believe in Christ. But when it comes to the roles of the church, the church that Jesus established, especially in light of the fact that Jesus also submitted his authority as God to the authority of his Father in heaven while he was here on earth, Jesus did that as an example to us. I'll go one step further in the First Timothy passage, chapter 2, where Paul, talking about the church and how it functions, he says, I don't permit a woman to teach her authority over a man. He goes on to use Genesis as the foundation for that, for it was Eve who was deceived, not Adam. And so this is a consequence of the fall. Now, Adam bears responsibility for the fall rather than Eve. But as a consequence of the fall, this order was given in the house of God and in the church of God. So, um, Samantha, it's, it's, it's simply you have to be careful when something just doesn't sound right or it doesn't sound fair to you. You've got to start with the, with the premise that God is fair and that God is just. And then you can start looking. And if you read Galatians 3.28 more carefully, you'd see that what's being spoken about there is justification by faith. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Let's see if phones are still quiet. So let me go to another question here. There's a question from Jason. He says, "What is the best way to teach children the Bible in church?" Uh, Jason, I'm a big uh, proponent of just reading it and telling them stories. 
um, we here, and again, uh, I, I, this is unusual, but we teach children the same way we teach adults, and that's verse by verse. So if our kids come to church this week and they're in the book of Acts, I'm, I'm not sure that that's the case, but, but wherever they left off last week, that's where they're going to start. Now, they don't go as fast as I do. I don't go very fast, but they don't go that fast because, uh, you know, the, the kids don't understand at the same level the adults do. So they they bring it down to the level of the children they're teaching. But the fact remains that they're teaching them the Bible. Now, I, I'm not a huge fan of Bible stories, children's Bible stories, because they take so many liberties. And I think you can take those same stories. If you want to teach about Samson, if you want to teach about Jonah, uh, you have to go to Veggie Tales. You have to make puppets. Uh, you can simply read the Bible and tell the story as you're reading the Bible. And I, I think that's the most effective way. I think sometimes, Jason, we forget that the Bible is supernatural. Um, these kids who are the object of God's love, uh, the Bible can work in their hearts and in their minds at their level, just like it does with adults. And so we we want our kids to be exposed to the Bible, regardless of how old our kids are, from the high schoolers down to the toddlers. They're learning the Bible here at Calvary Chapel. And we see some of the fruit of that, and I think that's the best way to teach children. I just, uh, you know, there's some really creative people. Uh, we have a puppeteer here, and we have um, some people that, that are just great at, you know, capturing the kids' attention. Um, but what we want them to get is the message of the Bible. And they get it, and they sit still for it. I think that's the most important thing. God really is sort of in control, Jason. So that's uh, my narrow opinion, but uh, it's worked really well for us for these 24 years that we've been doing this here at Calvary Chapel. Manuel says, or Manuel says, what are some good guidelines for giving and who should we be giving to our church or to people in need? Um, and well, there's a couple of things here. Um, guidelines for giving. I don't know what you mean uh, percentage-wise, 10% or or more. Um, you know, give whatever you feel comfortable giving. God loves a cheerful giver. God loves somebody whose heart is right with him. God wants somebody to recognize that the money they have doesn't belong to them, but it belongs to God. So if you're giving, the guideline needs to be what makes you feel good to give? If you ask God how much of his money he wants you to give, I promise he'll answer you. Now, if you want 10% as a guideline, it's not a bad starting place. We have the principle of the tithe in the Old Testament. It is not a New Testament principle. And so that's not a bad guideline, but I always, manual look at it this way. If... Jews who are under law, a law that condemned them were required to give 10%, how much more generous ought we be? Christians who have been given the covenant of grace, God's unmerited favor to the infinitely all-deserving. So give as the Lord leads. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, very clear. Um, just give whatever it pleases you to give. And give it with the heart to say, God bless it, and and he will. 
Now, with regard to who we should be giving to, the church or to people in need, uh, I don't think it has to be an either-or. I think it can be both. I think the primary object of giving ought to be the church, where you're attending, where you're serving. Um, well, we never ask for money here. Manuel, I talked about that a moment ago. Um, you know, our, the, the, the Lord has given us some really generous people. And without ever being prompted to give, uh, they give. They understand that this is the place where they're being fed. This is the place where they're developing lasting relationships. Uh, this is the place where they can use their spiritual gifts. And this is the place where they can come to and count on meeting Jesus here. And it costs money to be here. I wish it didn't. I wish we could say, you know, we're just going to do everything for free. And by the way, we do everything for free, but we still got rent and we still got utilities. And I've got 23 people on staff uh, for uh, here in the uh, uh, for, for the academy. Uh, another uh, six or eight people on staff here at the church. And then we got another uh, eight or ten people on staff down at Malta Medical. Uh, that costs money. So... The church, your church, ought to be the place where your giving begins. Uh, But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be generous and give to others who are in need as well. You know, Emmanuel, one of the things I tell my church here all the time is that I believe personally that uh, single moms and their kids uh, in, in the culture that we live in are sort of the New Testament equivalent of the widows and orphans of the Old Testament. And all you got to do is look around your church, wherever it is that you go. And, and if, if you know there are some single moms there, those are people that, generally speaking, are in need. Those are the ones who are barely making it by. Now, some of their need might not just be money, groceries. It, it might be somebody come mow their lawn, somebody come fix some things at their house. There's always a need and and uh, there, there's a place that you can give, and you can do that through your church. But if you have family members in need, God would bless your giving to them. You can do it, and you can say, in the name of Jesus, I give you this money. God put you on my heart, and, and he wants you to know how much he loves you. And especially if they're unbelievers, that would be a blessing. You don't want to get into a place where you're giving money to people, and they're going to start depending on that money. Uh, you certainly don't want to give money to people who are going to use it for drugs or alcohol or anything else, but, um, you know, there are just a lot of needs. So I think the most important thing, Manuel, is to give as the Lord leads. His Spirit knows all things. And if you will look at, uh, look to Him, rather, uh, he'll, he'll give you some direction about where to give and to whom we should give. A generous man, Proverbs says, a generous man will himself be blessed by, and I'm going to throw in a word, a generous God, his generous God. So um, be generous of heart, be generous of spirit, and uh, give as you can give. You know, I think sometimes we think about giving as how much can we give comfortably. I, I don't think giving should be comfortable. I think we ought to give above and beyond. Um, Not because we're made to feel guilty if we don't. Not giving above and beyond so that God will have to give to us. 
but just giving above and beyond because that's what God did for us. I always say that God the Father emptied the vault of heaven when he sent Jesus to us. And that ought to be our goal. Giving generously. God loves generous people. Manuel, I hope that helps. One more question before our break. Monica says, Judas repented and went to hell. Peter repented and went to heaven. I don't understand the difference. Well, Monica, Judas's repentance wasn't real repentance. Peter's was. Uh, Judas had an opportunity uh, all throughout the, um, the, the process of betraying Jesus uh, to ask for forgiveness, to come clean. He refused to do it. And finally, Satan entered his heart, and then he crossed that line. And it was beyond the point of no return. Peter, when he denied Jesus, his repentance was genuine. He immediately followed up with obedience. When Jesus said to go into Jerusalem and wait, that's exactly what Peter did. And Peter's repentance was sincere. Uh, Peter was broken by his denial of Jesus. Judas, when the King James used the word repented, it's a, 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 a way of using English language to describe something that's hard to understand. But, but repented in his case means he was sorry that it didn't work out the way he wanted it to work out. And of course, Judas' whole goal in betraying Jesus, uh, he knew who Jesus was. His goal, the only thing he wanted was to force Jesus' hand so that Jesus would come into his kingdom now and Judas would have a good position in it. When it didn't work out, he committed suicide. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left. The phones have been quiet. We'd love your calls, 340-9585 or 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Got a question for Pastor Ron and the word to stand on for life? You can send it to him via email at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Today's edition of The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh has been pre-recorded. Welcome back to The Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. We've got 30 minutes left. Time for your phone calls. Uh, 340-9585. Here is a question from Mandy. Pastor Ron, what kind of things open us up to demonic oppression? Uh, Mandy, the, the, the kind of behaviors. So first of all, I'm going to start very general and then I'll get more specific. Disobedience gives the enemy a foothold. That's very important to understand, just general disobedience. If you know God's asking you to do something and you don't do it, the enemy is going to begin right there pounding and pounding and pounding, and he's looking for an opening. So disobedience is the first response. But there are other things that seem to give the devil uh, even a deeper foothold. Uh, um, Paul writes it that if you go to bed angry, your prayers won't be heard. That, that gives the devil a foothold. Um, we know that drug use, anything that causes your mind to be altered, uh, that's, that's almost like handing Satan an invitation to come in and pound you. And he's going to do that. 
So drink too much, get high, uh, smoke marijuana, do other kind of drugs. Believe me, the enemy is always going to be there. One of the reasons that drug addiction is such an impossible thing for some to kick is because we've given Satan that inroad, and he's not going to give it up easily. Um, um, So so drug use um, and, and drinking too much. Um, another one is is we invite the devil in when we um, we invite him in when we're um, um, being selfish. We're we're looking out for for our our own benefit. So that's another one of those things that we we are guilty of holding on to unforgiveness and anger. Those are all things that give the enemy sort of a, a little bit of a boost in destroying us, things that we ought to open up. Now, here's one that's really important, Mandy. Sexual immorality. Paul, in writing to the church in Corinth, he says that when a man sins sexually, he sins against his own body. All other sins a man commits are committed outside his body. And the inference there is very clear that when we sin sexually... We're giving Satan a deep, deep inroad into our hearts. Our body, the temple of the Holy Spirit. I don't want to get too goofy about that, the way it sounds. Um, but, but when we drag Christ in us, the hope of glory, through sexual sin, it's almost as though we're inviting Satan to come in and destroy us. It's one of the reasons that pornography is such a big problem in the church of Jesus Christ now. It's so hard to shake. The the devil takes those images and, and, and he plays them over and over and over in your mind. And he's going to pound. He's going to pound and pound and pound. So sexual immorality of all types gives Satan a deeper inroad. Uh, also, when we invite the devil in through astrology or fortune telling when we're um, dealing with mediums um, tarot cards anything like that we're messing around then with the spirit world when we when we think about speaking to people who are dead um, it's my opinion even a church teaching that we can pray to saints or pray to Jesus mother gives Satan an opportunity to mess with us so those are the kind of things that we do that leave us wide open for demonic oppression. And uh, Mandy, the, the one thing I never want to do in my life is give Satan any help. I want to resist the devil. The Bible says if I do that, he will flee from me. And that doesn't mean I'm resisting by saying, flee devil, I bind you devil. That's not resisting him. Resisting him is saying No to the things that tempt you and saying yes to Jesus. That's how we resist him. And when we are obedient, Acts 5.32 says the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon us in our obedience and in the process uh, the devil flees. The devil has no answer for a Christian who's walking with Jesus. That's why he's always inspecting us. He's waiting for that one moment where we're going to step out in disobedience. We're going to do something God doesn't want us to do. And he's going to be right there to mess with us. Doesn't it seem unfair sometimes that that you can be doing really well in your walk for a long time, and the minute you are disobedient, the minute you do that one thing that you know you shouldn't do, 
It's like the devil's right there. Well, we're the ones who've given him a hand. Being angry and sinning gives the devil an upper hand. I know I mentioned this a minute ago, but we don't think about things like this unforgiveness. Too many of us are unwilling to forgive people who've hurt us. We hold on to it by choice. Satan is going to give us sort of that root of bitterness that's going to grow and, 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 and fester in our hearts. So those are the things, uh, Mandy, that open us up to demonic Im- oppression. Uh, remember, Christians cannot be possessed by demons of any sort. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Then say, greater is he who is in me than the other he in me. But believe me, the devil will try to huff and puff and threaten to blow your house down. And we've got to know who we are in Christ. If we do that, then we'll be okay. Here is an anonymous question. It says, I've never believed in God, but always knew I was doing things that were wrong. I started to read the Bible and realized how much trouble I was in because I've done some really bad things. Is it too late for me? Uh, Anonymous, just the opposite is true, in fact. I I love this uh, question, because just the opposite is true. You see, what you're responding to, you were doing terrible things that were wrong, you knew they were wrong, but they didn't really bother you much, and then you just started to read the Bible? Why did you start to read the Bible? That was the hand of the Holy Spirit. And as the Bible convicts you of sin and of righteousness and judgment, um, you know, we have a tendency sometimes to sort of freak out. Um, but, but he says, I'm convicting you. I'm trying to draw you to me. And it doesn't matter how many terrible things you've done in the past. All you have to do is ask Jesus for forgiveness. And keep in mind what I said, and this is a hard thing for an unbeliever to understand, but keep in mind that from the very beginning, when you realized that the things you were doing were wrong, um, when you read the Bible and you were deeply convicted, that's the work of God, and he's sort of wooing you to him. He wants you to get to that place where all of a sudden you realize that you're a sinner, you're condemned to an eternity in torment in hell, and Jesus is right there to say you don't have to. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So, Anonymous, it's really important you understand this is God going out of his way to reach you. You know, when I got saved, uh, and, and Anonymous, I don't know the things, and I don't even know who you are, so I certainly don't know the things that you've done. But I'm betting the things that you've done aren't as bad as the life that I lived before I came to Christ. And as I explained in responding to your question, um, you know, at, at some point, and I can't even put my finger on it, at some point, I began to realize that there were things that I was doing that were really, really ugly, really wrong. And I could do them before my conscience didn't bother me, but all of a sudden, my conscience was killing me. And I was living under this oppressive condemnation. And finally, my response was to run away. And in the process of running away, I ran right into Jesus. So it's not too late for you. In fact, this is exactly the right time. So let me encourage you to give your heart to Jesus, to repent of your sin, 
Acknowledge that what you've done is really, really bad stuff. And then tell God you're sorry. And his response to you will be Jesus. His response will be, well, that's okay, because I died for your sins. You're in a really, really good place in your life right now. And you're in that good place because God has been drawing you to himself for all of this time. So Anonymous, it's time for you to believe in God now and ask him to be your Lord and Savior. Let me remind you of two things, and I do this every time I'm teaching a Bible study, and I'll do it now. Jesus said, believe, and you're saved. What do we have to believe? We have to believe that he's the Son of God, given for the sins of the world, but also that he's God the Son. That he's God the Son. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus is God. You say, well, how do we know that for sure? Well, it's easy. Jesus said they would kill him. They did. They put him in a tomb. Guess what? He didn't stay dead. He's alive. And this Jesus has changed the world more than any man or woman who's ever lived on this earth. And he's changed it infinitely so. This is the God who's made you his project, Anonymous. So please say yes. 340-9585, our phones have been quiet. Here is a question from Matthew. How would you define spiritual abuse by pastors? Um, I'd be interested, maybe you can write or call Matthew. Um, I'd be interested in what the genesis of this question is. Do you feel like you have been abused? Uh, Spiritual abuse, in my view, is um, lording it over people. Jesus said, you know, you're not to rule like the Gentiles do. They lord it over people. We're to be servants of the people. Uh, spiritual abuse is is taking advantage of your position as a pastor. And we see all the time that people take advantage of their position uh, and, and end up sexually abusing um, women in their church. Uh, it just never should be. Uh, spiritual abuse is always being condemning, uh, being harsh with people, being unkind and unloving with people. All those things would be described as spiritually abusive, uh, whether it comes from a pastor or anybody else. So, um, Matthew, we who are pastors, we're humans. We make mistakes. Uh, We fall into sin. And I want to make the distinction between mistake and sin. Mistakes usually are sin but not willful. When we, 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 even as pastors, we fall into willful sin. We can teach some of the best messages on repentance uh, ever when we're in the middle of our own sin, even denying our need to repent. I think all of that spiritual abuse. So, you know, pastor's job is to sort of be the under-shepherd, to love the people, to lead them to Christ. I think sometimes when we manipulate people or use them to accomplish our goals, um, I, I, I think that is described as spiritual abuse. I've been here for 24 years, Matthew, and when people come from their churches, sometimes churches that they grew up in, and I hear the stories about what their pastors did to them. Um, we have women in our church who were impregnated by their pastors. All of that spiritual abuse, and God hates it all. So I hope that answers your question. Matthew, if you feel like you have been 
spiritually abused by your pastor, then with a witness, go talk to him. Um, ask for somebody else from the staff or one of the elders in the church to come and be a part of the conversation. But uh, I think we can confront people, confront them in love, not necessarily a, a, a war, but confront them in love and say, you know, I feel like you're spiritually abusing me or the church or whatever the situation is. And there usually is, and I say usually because sometimes spiritually abusive pastors isolate themselves from this, but there usually is a place of recourse, a, a way to address your grievances. And that's what we want to do. That's what we want to do. So thank you for the question, and I hope everything is okay for you. Danny says, My question is about the two witnesses in Revelation 11. Who are they, and what are they witnessing? Um, The idea of witnessing here, Danny, isn't that they're witnessing something, but they're witnessing of someone else. In this case, what they're witnessing of is Jesus Christ. So the two witnesses, I'm 100% convinced that the two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. Elijah, for sure, we know, uh, because uh, it's prophesied that before that great and dreadful day of the, of the Lord, Elijah must come. Elijah's going to come back. The other one is Moses. And the reason it's Moses is because uh, it's the representation of the law and the prophets. Jesus said the law and the prophets both spoke of him. Um, Elijah was the prince of the prophets. Um, Moses, of course, every time you um, hear him, it represents the law. So they witnessed to about Jesus who was coming through the law and through the prophets. But when they're here on earth uh, in the Great Tribulation, they're going to be a part of the Great Tribulation for the first three and a half years before God permits them to be killed. Um, and and they, they do the same kind of miracles, devour people with fire from the mouth and call down fire from heaven. Those are the things that Moses and Elijah did. So those are things. We also, Danny, um, remember that it was Moses and Elijah who appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. And the, the, the topic of conversation there was the things that were going to happen in Jerusalem, the, the, the trials and the torture, uh, including his death that Jesus was going to experience in Jerusalem. So uh, God sent them for sort of previews of coming attractions. Um, In the end times, he is going to send them again. It's a crazy thing to me, Danny, a crazy thing to me that you have people doing miracles, people that uh, the, the, the Jews of the day will recognize as Moses and Elijah, two of the most revered men in, in Jewish history, and yet they're still going to be firm in their unbelief. So that's the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Micah says, what was the difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees? Uh, I'll add another one, the scribes or the teachers of the law, uh, because we see them lumped together. Now, the primary difference between the Sadducees and Pharisees, Micah, was doctrine, what they believed. Uh, The Pharisees believed in miracles. They believed in the supernatural. They believed in life after death uh, of some sort. They didn't understand it the way we do, but they believed all of those things. The Sadducees... 
on the other hand, believed in none of those things. They believed only in what they could see and what they could hear. They believed that the, the, the word they have was, was the word of God only insofar as it pertained to the first five books of the Bible. That was all they needed. If it's not there, they don't need anything else. They don't believe anything else is from God. I always found it an amazing inconsistency if they believe the first five books of the Bible but didn't believe in miracles. My goodness. Miracles over and over and over. I mean, the parting of the Red Sea. I don't know how they would explain that away. The the water that flowed from a rock. The, the manna that fell from heaven. I could go on and on and on. But the Sadducees only believed what they could see. They were the literalists of the day. And I don't mean that as a compliment, but they were the ones who believed only in what they could see, what they could feel, what they could touch. In other words, without faith, Hebrews 11, 6 says, it's impossible to please God. It was impossible for these guys to please the Lord. By the way, there was always a lot of uh, animosity between the two groups. And the only time they would be together, sort of with a common enemy, was when they came against Jesus. And yet still there would be tension. Jesus was really great. So too later would be the Apostle Paul, really great at playing off one side against the other um, because he knew exactly what they believed. So uh, that was the difference between them. Um, the Pharisees who were in charge at the time of Jesus um, the Pharisees did such a poor job from a Jewish perspective of managing the Jesus problem uh, that after Jesus' death and resurrection, when, when, when Jesus didn't stay dead, uh, the Sadducees then used that to come back into the most powerful position uh, among them. So that was the primary difference between them, Micah. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. I can also recommend a book to you that's really great that deals a lot with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's called The Life and Times of the Messiah by Alfred Edersheim. It's a, it's a book that isn't easy to read, but it is a treasure for anybody studying the gospel accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Our phones have been completely quiet today. Here is a question from Richard. Um, he says, does Philippians 2, 10, and 11 indicate that everyone is going to go to heaven? Um, Richard, I'll read it, but before I even read it, let me say the answer to the question is no. So Philippians 2, 10, and 11 says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, there's no indication there that um, this is a celebration. Now, for some of us, when we um, our knees bow and our, our tongues confess about our Jesus, it's going to be a glorious, wonderful moment. We're going to stand there and bring glory to God the Father because this is our Savior. He's our friend. But for the people, Richard, that reject him, they too are going to acknowledge who he is. And it's going to be the most terrifying moment of their lives. It's going to be that moment just before they are judged forever. They had the chance. They heard the gospel message. And they can be really convinced that, that you know, I'm never going to believe you can't prove God. Well, one day, they're going to testify with their own 
knee with their own tongue that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And it will be absolutely terrifying. There's no suggestion anywhere in Scripture, Richard, that people get a second chance. In Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed unto God, uh, or appointed unto man, to die once, then face the judgment. So the idea here is very simple. We live while we're alive in this body. We have to choose where we're going to spend eternity. We want heaven that's with Jesus. We have to confess him as our Lord and Savior. If we don't do that, then we're going to be away from him. But on the day of judgment, the great white throne judgment, before everybody's thrown into the lake of fire, his name to the glory of his Father will be proclaimed by every mouth. Can you imagine for a moment the man that we call the Antichrist? Can you imagine the devil when he's thrown into the lake of fire acknowledging Jesus as Lord? But the whole thing is God will get the glory. They will hate making that profession, but they have no choice in the matter. So yes, uh, Richard, um, I mean, no, Richard, Everyone is not going to heaven. In fact, we're told, I'm going to be doing this in our Bible study on, uh, no, right at the end of 13. Um, um, Jesus himself said the um, way to heaven is narrow and few find it. The road to destruction is wide and the road well-traveled. So most of those professions are going to be done in absolute holy terror. I think we got time for one more. Here's John. My question is Romans 8.31, and what does it mean for us today? John, this is one of the great truths. You know, when we we're looking for Bible promises, um, I think this is one that we don't really understand and grasp. If God is for us, who can be against us? If we really believe that today, then we wouldn't turn to other people for help unless directed by the Lord after first turning to Him. We wouldn't freak out when scary things happen. God is for us. And if we're on his side, he's on our side. And if he's on our side, then no weapon formed against us will prosper. Now, by that, I don't mean that we won't have pain, we won't get hurt, we won't struggle. We will. But this is a great promise, that moment of weak faith or that moment of doubt. God is for you. I think there's another really important application, John. If God's for you, you realize he's not angry with you. He's not impatient with you. He doesn't get easily frustrated. He just wants to show you how precious you are to him. So meditate on that. If God is for me, who can be against me? The answer is nobody in the world. God's will will be done. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Paula will be live in studio with me tomorrow on the date day edition of the program. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Calvary.